0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, Geraldine Dude, with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. Well, in the latest of a long line of revelations about Facebook in the past month, Mark Zuckerberg announced late Thursday that he was rebranding the parent company of his social networking sites, Meta Platforms Inc, or Meta. Now, it's been suggested this may be one way to detract from the bad press surrounding his company, since whistleblower Francis Horgan, a former employee, leaked thousands of internal documents now dubbed the Facebook papers. The internal documents, including internal employee discussions, memos, research and presentations, were handed to a consortium of news outlets, One of the first journalists to publish widely on the contents of the leaked papers was Jeff Horwitz, who's the technology reporter from the Wall Street Journal. He joins me now, I'm delighted to say, to discuss the recent revelations, the rebranding, and what can be done to address the litany of problems facing the powerful group of social networking sites. Thank you for joining us, Jeff, and welcome to the program.
2: Happy
1: to be here. Uh, Before we get to the revelations from your Facebook file and the leaked papers, what do you make of of this long-awaited announcement by Mark Zuckerberg to rebrand the company to Meta?
2: So I guess the, the name change itself, like anything, the timing of it was a surprise, but the direction isn't. The company um, has for a long time been very, very interested in virtual reality, particularly as its hold on, on youth, uh, certainly with the Facebook product and perhaps with the Instagram product slips a bit. And um, I think they also have shown a lot more interest in building new things in virtual reality than dealing with the rather messy reality of the platform's existing products.
1: And so it's not you don't think, or do you, you're just not yet saying that it's a sort of shallow PR exercise, um, you know, designed to avert our gaze from what they're going through at the moment.
2: I, I honestly, I think that the company does really just kind of wish to not have to deal with all the stuff that everyone has been raising in terms of concerns about democracy, mental health, um, uh, the quality of discourse, uh, safety of users overseas. These are just things that the company, I think, is candidly perhaps less interested in than in virtual reality. And the You know, so I don't think it's a direct response to the criticism that they're just sort of trying to dodge with a new name. But I do think it is a sign of where priorities are at.
1: And how long has this been coming?
2: The investment and sort of the focus on the on first virtual reality and then, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has been personally talking about the metaverse a great deal in recent months. Um, That has been going on for, I mean, that operation has been building up for a few years now. Um, and it is really something where Facebook is just pouring many billions of dollars in with zero expectation of an immediate return.
1: Yes, they, uh, uh, from what I read, uh, they, the acquisition of Oculus, the virtual reality headset company, in 2014 was quite an important moment on this journey.
2: Yeah, and they've only been been deepening their investment. I think you know they they've tried to get into things that would deal with uh, sort of the most basic elements of picking up um, electrical signals to determine you know what perhaps hand movements you could type without a uh, keyboard, uh, things of that nature. But I mean, this is this is like I think Facebook really does want to be doing things that it considers to be visionary and working on the next thing rather than cleaning up a bit on some of the controversies on existing products.
1: He says he believes the metaverse will be the successor of the mobile internet, which sounded pretty big to me. I mean, what do you do you agree?
2: Um I don't I don't know I would bet against Mark zuckerberg's capacity to make products um, appealing to a mass market that said by the company's own acknowledgement the ability to do any of this stuff well and to you know say produce virtual reality headsets that are not um, bulky heavy and likely to burn your face uh, due to the amount of heat they generate um, that's years away still and i think one question with the company is Sort of, while they have problems with some of their existing services, are they kind of pivoting to the next thing um, just in time, or perhaps a little bit early?
1: See, this is what's interesting. Um, is if we move on to the leaked documents from Francis Horgan, um, most, if not all, of the documents are actually photos of a computer screen taken with someone's phone. I believe. Now, you've poured over these documents for months and produced some excellent reports from the Wall Street for the Wall Street Journal. For you, what is the most damning revelation to date?
2: Um, I think it is that Facebook understands that at the core of its platform, um, which is in a very much engagement-based system, um, they're trying to sort of get more out of every user, more production, more consumption, more sessions, uh, that they understand that they've built something that does exaggerate, um, perhaps Very human, but very negative impulses impulses to share things that are false, um, impulses to say things that are hurtful, um, uh, and impulses to sort of just engage with the most vitriolic content possible. And they are aware of these things. They do have ways to dial that back, um, but they have been unwilling to pursue those solutions, even though their own people have documented them as the. Best and safest route out of these problems.
1: Why are they unwilling to engage those solutions?
2: I think they really love the product. Um, I, you know, people talk about profits or about uh, you know Mark Zuckerberg sort of you know wanting to make more billions of dollars. But I, I actually find that to be a little bit simplistic. I think this is a company that was built by one man who truly does believe in what he has built and is surrounded by people who believe in both him and what he has built. And it doesn't seem like much of the criticism really penetrates, if that makes sense.
1: Well, just something you said earlier that really intrigued me, that they, they're onward looking, you know, onward ever upward to the next, and the, the, the business of living in the world with all its contradictions, um, uh, sullying, quotes, quotes their nice product, that's something they just can't incorporate? Is, is, that, is that it?
2: Yeah, I think there is the, the whole move fast and break things, um, uh is a um, a phrase that sort of they never really have moved back in ter- beyond in terms of their thinking. Um, the you know, for example, one of the things that our reporting found was that they had just simply not invested in the engineering for, Automated safety systems in um, many, if not most of the languages they serve internationally. Um, It turns out if we are those of us who speak English are getting the best possible form of Facebook. It is a lot less, shall we say, well maintained um, and well protected in other languages and they simply just haven't really ever invested in doing that work but they nonetheless just keep on rolling their products out and you know the hope is maybe they'll catch up with safety at some point but the thing is if you look at where they're sort of allocating engineers and resources that that talent those dollars are going toward the metaverse they're not going toward sort of perhaps bringing up um the services worldwide to the same standards that they're already in in the united states and and Australia,
1: pretty morally, morally dubious, isn't
2: it? <laughs> um, I uh, it's not my job to draw those conclusions, but um, if that is your response to the set of facts that we brought out in terms of, say, their inability to have hate speech classifiers that work in places like Afghanistan on a reliable basis then um, I'm not going to correct
1: you. Okay, I'll draw that conclusion then. And now your your reporting reveals that Facebook maintains an expansive program that exempts, this is another thing, exempts athletes, politicians and other high-profile users from its typical moderation process such as it is. Can you tell us about this, please?
2: Yeah, that was the first story we ran back in September on this this sort of collection of documents that Francis Haugen did collect. Um, It really is a a botched program. Um, They are working to fix it. um, But basically, they realized that to avoid what they called PR fires, the safest way to deal with high profile accounts was to just simply not police them at all. And so um, they uh, first created protections and just sort of rounds of additional safety checks, and then they created created, uh, outright exemptions. And I think it it really does get to a bigger question as to sort of what comes first, safety or convenience and speed uh, with the platform, because there are ways that Facebook could have, say, scrutinized high-profile accounts, which by their own reckoning are the potentially most dangerous for obvious reasons. They've got mass distribution, but they just simply haven't been willing To inconvenience those users or to um, risk the possibility of things that might result in public fur over the way they've handled their platform.
1: Look, finally, I notice the leaked papers reveal that Apple, another giant, you know, juggernaut, has attempted to regulate Facebook by threatening (laughs) to pull Facebook from the App Store if they didn't do more to address human trafficking, particularly the issue of maids being sold in the Middle East and Africa on its platform. So it really does highlight, doesn't it, the failure of governments to regulate social media platforms.
2: This was a truly embarrassing one, is that the the company... um, I literally had a policy where they were they were aware that there was widespread trafficking of human beings um, into the Gulf, um, and that uh, the conditions of those people were terrible. Um, they could see, uh, you know, people being beaten and raped in terms of the conversations that they were having um, with their recruitment agencies that had functionally sold them, and they hadn't really dealt with it until Apple basically said you guys get this under control immediately, or we boot you and Instagram from the app store. And they only dealt with it then. And then as our reporting showed, we actually spoke to a woman who was trafficked, um, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, I believe she returned, uh, she managed to escape and, and get out, um, in either December or January of this year. Um, she, um, you know, this is still a problem. They they still haven't dealt with dear, it. Oh
1: dear. It gets more and more morally dubious. Okay, look, thank you very much, Jeff. Keep going. Thank you. Jeff Horwitz, technology reporter from the Wall Street Journal, with an incredible story. Well, up next more incredible tales with our October edition of A Foreign Affair. To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now, that takes a lot of guts.
3: I'm for peace and quiet, Mr. Lut. It's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy.
1: Yes, it's time now for a foreign affair, our monthly discussion about key developments happening in the international arena. And it seems to be the month of summits with the annual ASEAN Summit, with the G20 meeting and of course COP26, all happening within days of one another. We'll be discussing some of these talks today and why they matter and also Australia's pivot to India, which has been gaining real momentum lately, certainly in discussion. But first, let me introduce our guests. Michael Wesley is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor International at the University of Melbourne. Heve Lemahieu is a Director of Research at the Lowy Institute and Amanda Hodge is the Australian's Southeast Asian correspondent and also the recipient of the Lowy Institute's prestigious media award. So welcome to you all and congratulations Amanda. Thanks, Geraldine. It was a real thrill, actually. Yes, I'll bet it. I'll bet it was. <laughs> um, now, Michael, you have written this really fantastic essay. May I say to you, I'm not just trying to butter you up for Australian Foreign Affairs magazine, which was dedicated this month to the rise of India. Before we get into the depths of it, can you tell us, please, what signals Canberra's been sending that suggest it is looking to strengthen our relationship with India?
4: Thanks, Geraldine. That's very flattering. Um, Look, there have been many, many signals being sent, to be honest. Really, the essay starts off in 1998, the time when India detonated its nuclear tests in Pokhran, and that was really the low point of the bilateral relationship. But you could say that ever since then, for the best part of 20 years, Australia has been steadily Taking India more and more seriously. And of course, it has really ramped up its attention to India as its relationship with China has started to sour. And so I I think you could say the Morrison government has, you know, adopted almost like a laser like focus on India. Um, Behind the scenes, diplomats have told me that Scott Morrison himself has told his government uh, that he wants to make real progress in the relationship with india we had the morrison modi summit of last year the virtual summit and really uh, i think as borders open up in 2022 we'll start to see a procession of australian ministers making their way to india and mm-hmm. and possibly seeing uh, Indian ministers come back the other way as well.
1: Mm. Yet you don't really think it's clear what strategic role Australia actually wants India to play or whether India would be prepared to play it. In a
4: way, I think uh, Australia will be best served by seeing India as a collaborator in establishing and maintaining the stability of the Indian Ocean region. The last thing we want is for great power competition to spill into the Indian Ocean region. Obviously, that would be a a major reversal of our strategic circumstances. And so, I think India and Australia have started on that process. But in terms of India playing a bigger role, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, a, a balancing role against China, which I think some of the thinking behind the quadrilateral security dialogue is um, I'm not sure India is prepared to step up and play that role mm. um, or is, even has the capabilities at this stage to play that role.
1: Well, look, I'd, it's very pertinent. Uh, an interview we did with the former DFAT Secretary Peter Varghese back in 2018. This was after he'd written a roadmap, essentially, for the Australian government to harness economic opportunities in India like we have been here before. He warns... Uh, I'd like you to hear it now, that we shouldn't expect India to be the next China. Let's have a listen.
4: I think it's uh, distracting to think of India as the next China. I mean, certainly it's, it's the only country with scale to match China, but its economic model is going to be very different. India won't have the ability to marshal resources in service of a national strategy in the way that China does. And, you know, bear this in mind, China is five times the size of the Indian economy. So China would have to virtually, you know, stand still, and India grow at well over ten
0: percent a year for a long time for the two to uh, to catch up.
1: Have I? How do you respond to those remarks, and also to what Michael was saying?
0: Yeah, I mean, with two two caveats essentially. I mean, the the first is that um, I remember very well in early 2019 at the Raisina Dialogue in New Delhi, General David Petraeus, uh, US General, former General, and uh, S.J. Shankar, who uh, would become India's external affairs minister at that time. Who spoke was at the uh,
1: Crawford Forum earlier this year. It was very interesting, by the way.
0: Absolutely. And, and he's brought a lot of innovation in Indian foreign policy and I think also is personally behind this reorientation of India and realignment, I would say, towards uh, the United States and its allies, but uh, but I think we've got to check our ambitions and understand, I think Michael makes a very good point in his essay, Australia's worldview is heliocentric. We are very focused on the dominant power, on our uh, great and powerful friends, in this case, the United States and its network of allies. And India is, uh, in some sense, aligning itself more openly with that uh, US-led order, but it is not part of it. And coming back to David Petraeus, I mean, he basically on stage challenged Jay Shankar to take a side. He said India has to decide between uh, China and the United States. And Jay Shankar retorted India should take a stand and will take a side, our side. And I think that really uh, explains much about the way that uh, that India continues to be a very proud and independent uh, middle power, a major power in many sense, and will align itself with the United States, particularly where the common denominator is China. But I think there are limitations in how far it will evolve in that direction. The second caveat I would add is simply the point that uh, Peter Varghese already made, which is that, uh, yes, India is the only country with the demographic scale to match China, but we have to understand its rise on its own terms. It will not become a superpower, at least not until much later to the century, and the pandemic has hit it hard. So uh, relative to uh, its growth path prior to the pandemic, India will be about 13% smaller than forecast by the end of the decade. And, and so we do actually have to take into consideration that there are a lot of domestic variables here which will encumber India's ability to project itself on the world and regional stage.
1: Now, Amanda, I wonder, you've got a long-standing interest in India having been posted there, uh, how you view Australia's approach to India and what it might mean more broadly for the region?
3: Look, I think actually the more interesting question is how India has shifted. I mean, I know Michael was talking about Australia not sort of really discovering India for 10 years. I mean, I would point out that, you know, the Australian government was negotiating very hard at the same time for both the China and the Indian free trade agreements. But, you know, China came up, India didn't for reasons that have already been discussed. But what's interesting about India is its shift. Yes, we've shifted, but India has shifted really noticeably in the last few years. And that's got a lot to do with its sort of heightened border status with China. I think it's also a function of the pandemic and the fact that it's now seeing that there's a window of opportunity to sort of shift supply chains. So now suddenly a free trade agreement with Australia, while not the comprehensive one we want, is much more attractive to India than it was even two years ago. You know, we now, as Michael also pointed out in that essay, have have really strong connections with India, not on those sort of platitude levels of cricket and Commonwealth, which India used to roll its eyes at, mm-hmm. right? But now we, we actually have really serious things in common. One is, you know, we have this really difficult trade staff with China. India has got a, a physical border start with China. We also have in common the need to reduce our economic dependence on China, and you know, for us as well as for India, this is a golden opportunity to start realigning our supply chains outside of this yes. China-centric sphere that we've been working within for ten years. Can I just quickly ask,
1: Michael? All of this, despite the drift, shall we say, in the quality of India's democracy? Michael, do you, you know, do you think that's possible? Look, I think
4: um, we do overdo. The rhetoric about sharing values. My view is that sharing values only takes you so far in international relations. Yes, there are worrying trends in in India's democracy and and we should be very aware of those. But most important, as, as Amanda said, is the increasing confluence of interests with India. And and that's what we we should build on.
1: Okay. Well, let's turn to the ASEAN summit now. And Amanda, uh, could you tell us, please, about this very significant decision, I think it is, you can tell me whether you agree, to exclude Myanmar's military chief from the meetings? Because it feels like the first firm move we've seen from ASEAN when it comes to the really appalling Mm. situation in Myanmar.
3: Yeah. It might have been accidentally firm, actually. I'm not (laughs) sure whether ASEAN really expected Myanmar to actually boycott by leaving its chair empty. You know, it did do something quite rare and almost unprecedented, which is tell the Myanmar junta that the commander, Min on Lang was not welcome at this summit because... He's basically, he has not played ball on the five-point consensus that all ASEAN leaders, including Min Aung Lang, agreed to in April to try and bring a resolution to this unbelievable crisis in Myanmar that has occurred since Min Aung Lang himself led the coup that asked mm. the Aung San Suu Kyi government. So, yeah, I mean... Perhaps they didn't quite expect Myanmar to call ASEAN's bluff like that, but it has actually blown back on Myanmar now because, you know, right now ASEAN's chair is the Sultan of Brunei. Next month, it becomes Cambodian strongman Hun Sen, who's had some experience with similar treatments from ASEAN. Mm. You know, about 20 years ago, ASEAN said Cambodia could join um, ASEAN, but then you know there was the coup. Democracy was slipping, and uh, ASEAN delayed Cambodia's membership by two years. And in that time, Hun Sen had to jump a lot of hurdles to get into ASEAN. So he knows he has some experience with this. And I don't think he's going to be as soft on Myanmar. Oh, it could work the other way. Couldn't it? It could work the other way. And there's another reason for this. When Cambodia was last chair of ASEAN in 2012, it did not distinguish itself. It was seen to have been a proxy for China, particularly on concerns about the South China Sea, it, it sort of stymied a consensus statement, When, of course consensus is everything in ASEAN, over South China Sea and that emerging dispute that was happening between a lot of the ASEAN states and China over territories in that region. So if Cambodia was to look like, you know, it, it, it was acting on behalf of another state during this year's championship to come, I think that would be terminal for, mm. for Cambodia. It mm. would it would look really bad. So I think Hun Sen is actually he's already given hints that he is not going to give in to Myanmar, and it has to be the junta, I should say, not Myanmar that actually gives ground on this. And that will require the Junta to make some pretty significant compromises. Gosh, wouldn't that be
1: extraordinary if Hun Sen turns out to be? It would be absolutely (laughs) extraordinary. Oh, (laughs) yes. Uh,
0: I'm very sceptical.
1: Have I? You're very sceptical?
0: Uh, I'm very sceptical. I I mean, I think uh, Amanda's absolutely right. I think Hun Sen will come under pressure to continue this policy set. by not seating Min Online, the the senior general, at ASEAN summits, including an upcoming summit with Europe, but there's a question as to whether any of this will actually produce uh, uh, real pressure or outcomes um, yeah. on the ground in Myanmar. And I think that that I, I you know I think the ASEAN-led process has basically run out of steam. It is now about window dressing. So. We'll have to watch and see, but it's it's certainly a, a, a very grim outlook. Uh,
3: I it wondered, is. And, yeah. and sorry, I was just going to say that it's getting grimmer, actually, because there are these people's defence force militia that have risen up in Myanmar against the, the Myanmar security forces, which have been incredibly brutal. Mm. And it's now become a situation where there are increasing targeted assassinations of UNTA officials by these people's oh, defence forces right. and not just UNTA, you know, like sort of UNTA officials at a high level, but at a very local level, people who've taken local jobs because they need to feed their families and now they're getting these sort of almost night, Taliban-style night methods, you know, and that's just absolutely catastrophic.
1: Our colleague program Religion Report had a really shocking story, I think it was last week or the week before, about some evidence that children are being tortured there, uh, by the regime. I mean, it, it really is a diabolical regime. That uh, it's, it's a disgrace all round. Uh, look, I just, it is interesting the way other powers are trying to position themselves. I want to play a little bit of what both Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister, and US President Joe Biden, who both attended the talks this week, had to say. AUKUS does not change Australia's commitment to ASEAN or the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. Indeed, it reinforces it
4: and the United States is committed to ASEAN's centrality. It's a linchpin for maintaining the resilience, the prosperity, and security of our shared region. And I want you to know I am truly looking forward to working with you to advance not only our many shared interests, but our shared values and shared vision for a region where every country can compete and succeed on a level playing field.
1: Uh, I mean, Michael, just final remark to you about what it reveals about ASEAN, because ASEAN's got sort of complex anxieties. It hates being thought of being caught up in future conflicts and being asked to pick a side. But they've got to find some sort of coexistence, haven't they, with what is coming through with the Quad and new partnerships like AUKUS, whatever it means? Yeah, look, I think
4: ASEAN is, is really at a point of reckoning, Uh, you hear ASEAN officials really question the wisdom of allowing Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos in to their membership. They regard those countries as having diluted ASEAN's ability to do things. Um, There's also the fact that ASEAN is now extremely sensitive, and, and you could hear this in Joe Biden's reassuring remarks that that it is starting to be displaced from being kind of central to how the region develops and works and i think there's a real question for australian foreign policy as well and that is as our relationship with china becomes more and more conflictual and confrontational as we allow ourselves to succumb to the polarizing logic of US-China competition, we're actually drifting away from Southeast Asia and ASEAN because if there's one thing... Despite what the Prime Minister said. Despite what the Prime Minister says, if there's one thing that really does unify the original ASEAN members, it is the refusal to be drawn into this polarising competition. They don't want to choose between China and the United States What they want is to engage China, the United States, India, Japan, Australia, and others so that they can maximise their freedom of manoeuvre. So, the more Australia chooses the US side and becomes confrontational with China, the more we drift away from that that confluence of interest with Southeast Asia.
1: Mm. I mean, I do note we we did agree to a comprehensive strategic partnership with ASEAN. So that certainly amounts to something um, tangible. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Look, I'd like to finally turn to the COP26 conference to discuss how geopolitics might play into our ability to meet this ambition of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, because that hasn't been given, I don't think, much attention in the lead up to the conference. Now, Heve, we know that China and the US are the world's two largest greenhouse gas emitters by volume. How do you see the tensions between the two affecting their ability to hit their climate targets or might it, as some dream, might it be the thing that actually transcends those um, geopolitical ambitions?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think a key dynamic to watch um, at COP26 in Glasgow is whether state competition, great power competition can be leveraged in some sense in tackling this uh, problem of climate change. I mean, we exist in a very different uh, world order than even in 2015 when the Paris Agreement was signed. And that was in large part down to the ability of Barack Obama to sit down with President Xi and, and knock down a, a cooperative sort of uh, bilateral exchange between the US and China, the world's two largest carbon superpowers, that's not going to happen this time around. But what uh, could be done is that it's uh, very clear that China still falls short. It's been very ambitious in the long term. So President Xi has declared the UN General Assembly that by 2060, China aims to be carbon neutral. But it it is ambivalent uh, and hedging, I think, in the near term. But China will have the support of much of the developing world unless the US and others, including Australia, reach out uh, to the developing world and prove that they're serious in terms of commitments yes. already made at the G7 uh, to do much more in climate finance, for example, which has just not materialised. So there's a lot more we can be doing to leverage uh, state competition in a race to the top. Now, that's the theory. Whether it will work is a whole other question. Yeah. I mean,
1: Michael, just you know, just drawing to a close, but your whole point about interests determining foreign policy as opposed to values, like I don't know quite where one puts climate policy because it's sort of mix. It's both, isn't it? So I just, wonder where, you know, Australia's coming under a lot of international pressure to do more, whether you think this might affect our global standing.
4: Look, I think it will. I agree with Herve. I think that the great powers are eyeing what will happen at Glasgow through their rivalries and and their positioning particularly uh, in the developing world. When it comes to Australia, we already know that this issue is absolutely shredding our reputation in the Pacific, which is an incredibly important region for us. It is the one issue that the Pacific is focusing on and it's almost negating all of the other work that we're doing and all of the aid that we're spending in the Pacific. And unless Australia can change the Pacific's perception of its willingness to act decisively on climate change, it will continue to be a strategic liability for us in an incredibly important region to us.
1: Uh, And final remark to you, Amanda, because we've all been preoccupied with COP26 here, but it wasn't even much of a priority at the ASEAN Summit, was it?
3: No, I mean they've you know they've got other fish to fry at the moment. Although you know there was plenty of talk about um, about climate action, and I think you know what what Michael and Herve said is is absolutely right. Um, what what a lot of developing nations are focusing on is the bad faith behaviour of the developed world, which. You know, has not yet come come forward with its hundred billion dollar commitment to help the poorest or developing countries move into the technology they need to adopt to transition. And uh, I think you know that's what a lot of these these countries are waiting for. I mean, Indonesia, for instance, is focusing very heavily right now on regenerating six hundred thousand hectares or something like that of mangroves as a way to soak up carbon. Mm-hmm from the atmosphere in the next three years. But, you know, it it, it is also focused on reducing deforestation and had some sort of an agreement with Norway in which Norway was going to pay it to do that. And Norway in the last year has reneged on that agreement as a classic example of how the first world has not acted in good faith with the developing world on climate promises. And going into this COP26 summit, I think we're going to hear a lot about that from the developing world.
1: Oh, look, we have to go. There's so much more we could discuss, but there's so much underway, isn't there? Michael Wesley, Heve Lemahieu and Amanda Hodge, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Michael Wesley from the University of Melbourne, Heve uh, from the Lowy Institute, Amanda Hodge, the Australian Southeast Asia correspondent and winner of the Lowy Media Award. And there's a longer version on our podcast of that discussion too. Well, up next, a rare vampire in the library. We'll be Yes, let me introduce you to a tale of aristocratic seduction, a vampire, and a library in Queensland. In 1819, a novel called The Vampire, spelt V-A-M-P-Y-R-E, was published. It's supposedly the first vampire story in the English language. Almost 80 years later, it inspired Bram Stoker to write Dracula and uh, created a new genre that's more recently given us the Vampire Diaries and the Twilight Saga. Well, a rare first edition copy of The Vampire has been found in a library at the University of Queensland during an appraisal of the library's collection. Simon Farley's from the university's Friar Library and he's here to tell us all about it. Welcome to Saturday Extra.
5: Hello, Geraldine. Thanks for having me.
1: It must be every librarian's dream to hold and discover a rare book. How was it found?
5: Well, we were going through our rare book collection and we're particularly interested in books that had uh, marginalia written on the pages, so interesting notations. And we we discovered some some very interesting examples, but this one really stood out. And when we looked at the copy we had, we realised that it was a, actually a very rare first edition, a first edition, a second printing of the first edition.
1: And the book is by Lord Byron's personal physician, John Polidori, um, how did the book come about? Before I sort of ask how on earth it found itself in Queensland.
5: <laughs> well, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, Lord Byron was um, kind of in exile from England. He'd uh, got himself into some trouble. He'd been involved in various affairs. He left England and went for a tour of Europe and was staying in Italy. He took his, uh, his physician, John Polidori, with him on his journey. They went to Switzerland and he rented uh, a place called the Villa Diodati, for a number of months. This was in 1816, which was quite an extraordinary year in that it was a freezing cold year around the world. There were temperature anomalies, probably because of the explosion or eruption of a volcano in Indonesia. So in the, the Villa Diodotti, he brought together a number of his friends, uh, including uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Mary Goodwin, who Shelley would later marry, and uh, Goodwin's uh, sister, Claire Claremont. Uh, and John Polidori and there was a night where they were gathered together and they were reading from a collection of ghost stories called Phantasmagoria which is a French translation of a German series of stories and in this atmosphere in this uh, in this mood they were in they challenged each other to write uh, ghost stories and it was in this context that some of the most uh, you know wonderful stories such as Frankenstein by Mary Shelley were created on that night
1: extraordinary. So stories that have positively animated people's imagination for, as you say, a hundred, nearly two, well, yes, 200 years, must have been quite a holiday because the British Library website tells me that the story explores the connection between a depraved young aristocrat and vampirism, the moral collapse both of the woman being seduced and her brother, and the inability of her family to protect her. And it's widely thought, Simon, that the vampire is based on Byron.
5: Yeah, well, perhaps the reason why people thought that Byron was the author of uh, The Vampire was that he had had an affair with Lady Carolyn Lamb, who had uh, famously said of Byron that he was mad, bad and dangerous to know. (laughs) That um, She wrote a story in which there was a character named uh, Lord Ruthven, which is the same uh, character in The Vampire. And That was obviously based on Byron. So that connection to Byron was probably why people, first of all, thought that he wrote it. We do know that the idea for the story was hatched that night at Villa Diodotti and it was his idea, uh, but it was certainly his physician friend, John uh, Polidori, who wrote the story that was later published.
1: Mm. And I think for people who've been watching Victoria, I think I'm right in saying Lady Carolyn Lamb was the wife of Melbourne, uh, Lord Melbourne.
5: That's that's, sure that's, uh, that's absolutely mm. right. That's, that's true. Yes.
1: And there's some <laughs> interesting handwritten notes in the book that, as you say, alerted you to it and then helped you trace the possible ownership of the book. What did you find?
5: The book uh, was owned by a lady named Mary Ann Rickett, uh, and she had a connection to Crichton House in Dorset. Now, the interesting thing is that we did a bit of sleuthing and we discovered that she was the cousin of Charles Sturt, the explorer who came to Australia in the later 1820s. So, there's an interesting connection to Australian history. Um, Our library very much documents uh, Australian literature, Australian history. I mean, we have the manuscripts of David Malouf, Peter Carey, many famous Australian writers. But The rare book collection extends beyond that, but this book does have an interesting provenance in the connection to Sturt. So we do speculate that perhaps he had borrowed the book uh, from his cousin. We know that he stayed at Crichton House on many occasions. Crichton House was also the place where the Prince Regent, who later became George IV, often stayed. So there was quite a connection to interesting circles who moved and went to and from uh, that house. So we speculate that perhaps that's how it came to Australia, but we don't know exactly how it came to be in the Friar Library.
1: And, you know, just a little bit more gorgeous detail. When it first appeared in print, um, uh, from our research, says that the title page stated it was a tale by Lord Byron, which Polidori protested about, and his uh, name was removed from the subsequent editions as issues of the first edition. But this is a rare second issue of the first edition, isn't it? And there's no Byron name on the title page, is that
5: right? No, that's right. So Polidori protested that Byron was attributed as the author and Byron also did disown it and so no, I didn't, didn't write it. So the second uh, printing took away Byron's name from the title page. Uh, however, it wasn't until a few editions later that John Polidori's name was put on there. So it was really kind of an anonymous uh, story for quite a while, but the connection to Byron was what made it truly famous. I mean, he was such a such a famous figure at the time, he'd written the Child Harold poems. Uh, he was notorious for various reasons in society. So that connection to Byron would would have been very helpful for the publishers mm. in selling and publishing many, many, many copies and editions. And in that time, it was really quite famous. It's only now that the story isn't quite as well known because of Dracula by Bram Stoker being much mm. more famous mm. and Frankenstein as well by Mary Shelley.
1: How rare or valuable is say a second printing of a first edition like this
5: uh, well it's it's really very rare we rarely ever see copies of this printing of the first edition on the market we do know that there was a copy that' sold in London for eight and a half thousand pounds uh, recently that was a second printing first edition so that was that's about fifteen thousand 1000 Australian dollars. Mm. So yeah, and there are a couple of other copies of later printings on the market now and they're all in in the region of uh, 10,000 American US dollars. So quite quite valuable and quite scarce.
1: Uh, so what will you do with the book? How how interesting is it for your students for
5: instance? <laughs> Oh, look, it's uh, wonderful for students and researchers. We have classes here that look uh, into book history and um, the students to actually hold in their hands a a book like this that is very, very rare. It's also the fact that these sorts of collections have an aura about them. We know that uh, other people have held these things in their hand and they've lasted through time. So we have spaces where we conduct object-based learning and we can connect the students to these beautiful rare books in that way. But we're also very keen that the public know about these uh, beautiful books and that they can come in as well and mm. uh, and see them and, and hold them and just feel the aura that comes from them.
1: Well, Simon, I can imagine what a little thrill it is. So thank you very much indeed for telling us all about it.
5: That's my pleasure, Geraldine.
1: And there's a tale for Halloween for you. That was Simon Farley, the Friar Librarian from the University of Queensland. Uh, now, just just a gorgeous text has come in from Anthony of Belfield. Why? What has the ABC's logo and Mark Zuckerberg's Meta logo? What do they have in common? They're both matica- mathematical curves called Lissajous figures. Lissajous figures. ABC's logo generated by a ratio of three to one. Meta's logo generated by a ratio of two to one. I've done it myself. I must say, I did notice. And took that in. Now, I consulted Helen Thomas, given that it's Melbourne Cup Day on Tuesday, I consulted Helen Thomas, uh, who's the great um, Radio National sage about racing, for her tips, as I always do at this time of the year. Her tip is to stick with the hot favourite, incentivise. He has, she tells me in a text this morning, the best form, nine wins on the trot after breaking his maiden in uh, April this year at just his fourth race start, um, at the unusually mature age of four. Indeed, that's right. The best backstory, he's a homebred from Toowoomba for the original owner and trainer, Steve Tregear, who was persuaded to sell half of him a few months back to a high-rolling syndicate for $600,000. He's now with one of Australia's best horsemen, Peter Moody. He of black caviar fame. Shortest price favourite since Far Lab, she tells me. And I hope that you enjoy the Melbourne Cup. I know lots of different views, but there we are. And that's it for extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today, and I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.